listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, we sang my favorite song today. Uh, not that that's uh, super important, but I love the song in Christ alone. And uh, what great gospel truth. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, if you've been here uh, much uh, at all over this year, uh, your Bible should be well-worn in this section. Uh, we started this series back in January, uh, if you can believe that. And uh, we are nearing the end. If you look at the lay of the land here, we've only got a couple more chapters. Today we're going to look at the first half of chapter 14. Uh, by way of review, just real quickly, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter here to an actual church in an actual place at an actual point in time. Historically, that is the church at Corinth, a messed up church, <laughs> to be sure. And Paul has been writing to combat a prideful, divisive spirit at Corinth. And he's unpacked a number of different issues that caused this division uh, within the church there at Corinth. Uh, especially here in the last couple of chapters uh, as it relates to spiritual gifts uh, and how they function within the life of the church. And in chapters 12 and 13, he has tackled that problem primarily uh, by unpacking some general principles, uh, some foundational truths. In chapter 12, he spoke about celebrating our unity and at the same time cherishing our diversity. Uh, as followers of Jesus Christ, he said we are one body with many members, using that metaphor of the, of the body there. That was chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, he called us to exercise costly, sacrificial, Christ-like love. And he calls it the more excellent way. And we use the uh, analogy of the operating system that needs to be in place and functioning in our Christian lives in order for uh, our gifts to be uh, biblically, properly uh, applied in a God-honoring way and so that we can be unified uh, in the exercise of our many and diverse gifts. That was chapter 13. And so it was as if Paul kind of pressed the pause button. Now that Paul has covered some of these foundational principles that will establish Christian unity, he begins now in chapter 14 here to get a bit more specific. His focus becomes uh, more, more focused. He, he's going to get down to details. And if you look at the, the last verse of chapter 12, I pointed out last week, he said, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Uh, again, he's talking about these, these higher spiritual gifts, and he sort of leaves us there with a question. Which are these higher gifts that we are to earnestly desire? And then he doesn't answer it until now here in chapter 14. Again, it's like he kind of presses the pause button on that issue to make sure that we understand that we must have Christ-like love working in our lives and in our church if spiritual gifts are, uh, are going to be used in the way that God intends them and they not become a toxic issue within the church or a divisive issue in the church. Uh, one underlying truth that we need to, to kind of revisit here that I think Dr. Esri really brought up a few weeks ago when he uh, was preaching, uh, and that's this. Regardless of what the spiritual gift is, it should always be utilized in a way that glorifies Christ and is for the common good. 
Okay, God doesn't give us gifts so that we can glorify ourselves. So I can utilize this gift and everybody go, whoa, isn't he amazing? That, that is not the way God intends for us to use uh, spiritual gifts. And so I want us to bear that in mind as we continue into this 14th chapter. And so uh, now that he has said that in chapter 13, he's establishing this foundation of love. If you look at verse number one of chapter 14, where we're going to be today, he says, pursue love. He's tying it all together here and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And so he picks up kind of the same language there that you see at the end of chapter 12, repeats it over again. So as to signal to us that he is now ready to, uh, you might say, resume the discussion. He's taken it off of pause where he talked about love in chapter 13, and he's picking up this conversation on the gifts, particularly earnestly desire the higher gifts. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. It's the same language. Okay, so which are then the higher gifts? What is it that we're to desire? Uh, and so what are they? Well, at Corinth, and again, I want to remind you that we are we're studying a letter, an actual letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to an actual church at Corinth. Very important for us to study Scripture in its cultural context. And so at Corinth, the believers thought that the mark of true spiritual maturity, the really advanced spiritual people, could speak in tongues. And Paul is arguing here that it's not tongue, 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 tongue that is best and most useful and helpful for the local church. And the rest of our passage this morning through verse 25 here of chapter 14 is really an extended discussion of why that is the case. Uh, why the gift of prophecy in this case is, uh, is more helpful and edifying and useful for the church. Now let me just pause for a moment uh, and, and simply say um, that there is a great deal of misunderstanding and confusion surrounding spiritual gifts. Okay, Some of you, I realize maybe you grew up in a, uh, in a Pentecostal church, uh, maybe in a charismatic setting. Uh, where this kind of language of tongues and prophesying and all those sorts of things, that's very common to you. You feel very comfortable hearing that kind of language. Others of you who maybe grew up in the, in the Baptist tradition, you're like, what in the world is this? It's almost like we Baptists are afraid of the Holy Spirit, you know? I mean, about as much of the Holy Ghost as we ever got as we lifted our hands about right here. Get it up over your head. That's, that's too far. I can lift my hand right. So I think sometimes we've, we've kind of missed the mark to a large degree. Now, I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to lay my cards on the table fully this morning. Okay, I want you to, to understand something. I think most of you know kind of my upbringing and all those things. I want to say up front that I hold to uh, what is called a cessationist view as it relates to some of these giftings. I will say, however, that I am not nearly as dogmatic about that position as I might have been several years ago. I believe, then, that the miraculous sign gifts, particularly that we find in the New Testament, belong to and were emphasized in a particular way during the apostolic age. They were given to the church to validate the ministry and message of the apostles. They communicated authoritatively to the church under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the meaning and the significance of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when the canon of Holy Scripture, that is the entirety of the Word of God, was complete, the whole Bible became the possession of the church, then those revelatory or sign gifts ceased to function 
in the church. And we now have what Scripture itself describes as a more sure word from the Lord today. We have His word complete and sufficient in the Scriptures. And regardless of your view on some of these things, I will also say this as a very important underlying principle. Okay? Regardless of how someone is utilizing some of these gifts, whether it be in the form of a, a prophetic word that they feel God has specifically given them and they're, they're to speak that into your life or whatever the case may be, that will never, never be contrary to the Word of God. Okay? You can just know that. If they come up and say, hey, I got a word from the Lord about you, brother, and it's contrary to the word of God, run, okay? Maybe don't run. I mean, be gracious, but you can just know that is not from the Lord. Our God is not a God of confusion. He's not like into the business of sending us like weird mixed signals and everything else. Like we had a guy one time in my, the church I pastored in South Texas. I, I, I did not know him prior to this event. He had had a relationship with the church prior to my ever coming there as pastor. And so some of the leaders in the church said, hey, this brother is going to be in town. And how about if we have him come speak at our church? I thought, well, the church already has an established relationship with him. I think his ministry was based in Oklahoma somewhere. And so I said, sure. And so we scheduled him in to come speak on a Wednesday night. Everything rocked along pretty good until late in the service, he just kind of started prophesying over particular people. And, and most of what he had said initially seemed to be pretty legit. And was, but then he got to this one young lady in particular, and he said some things over her, and I'm like, oh, minute. Like she's not even a believer. She, she's not even a follower of Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, it, it just, and so I, I, I need you to know that I've preached in some settings. I've preached in some, 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 some settings. And so some of these things are, are not foreign to me. Okay. Now, I, I also want to be clear while that is the view that I have uh, certainly traditionally held to, I have many, many dear friends who hold to a different view. And that may be some of you. Uh, I realize that. They hold to a what's called a continuationist view of those giftings. Those friends are not heretics. Okay? I want to be clear. Uh, while some would like to make this a matter of first importance, first tier importance, we believe this issue is of secondary importance as it relates to what we believe, what we must agree on, what we can disagree on, and all those things. And we talk about this in our new member orientation. We, we talk about how there are some things that are very clearly, we hold them in a closed fist. They are not negotiable for us. The Bible is the Word of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. God's Son come to pay the penalty for our sin. There is only one way for a person to be saved. That is through by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Those things are not negotiable for us. There are some other things that we hold in an open hand. Like eschatology, the study of the end times, and the timing of the return of Christ, and some of those things. We have a lot of differing views on those issues within our church family. And, and that's okay. As long as we're gracious, as long as we're kind and expressing our beliefs to one another and all those things, and we don't make those issues more than really God intends for them to be. And this is one of those areas. Now, I will say, as it relates to these giftings particularly, I believe personally that there are some incredible abuses in this area. I'm not going to preach a sermon this morning on the faith healing movement and some of those kinds of things. Um, I, I, like some of you, I have some real questions. I'm like, if you really believe that you have the gift of healing, why do those always have to happen at a big crusade where you get a big offering? 
You ever wonder those kinds of things? I, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm really not. Maybe, maybe, you know, but I just thought, like, why, why would God not allow you to go down to a local hospital and exercise your gift of healing there and just, like, empty the rooms? Um, and so I, I, there are a lot of, and some of you, maybe you grew up in a, in a charismatic church, and, and you would say that some of the things that are common in some charismatic churches today are foreign to you. People rolling on the floor and in what they call holy laughter or uh, barking like dogs. And there, there's a lot of different variations in some of these ways. And people, the way that they express uh, their worship and all those. And I realize also that we're all very different people. Some of you by nature, you're just like, you're very reserved and everything else. And so, I mean, for you to even lift a hand in worship or anything like that, that's maybe difficult for you. And so... I. While I'm I'm speaking on some of these things, I want you to understand that there's a lot of different places where people land on these things. Okay, and there was some debate about this a few years ago, even within our Southern Baptist circles, about some of our missionaries uh, holding to a view uh, that's kind of a. And this is one of the reasons that I'm not nearly as dogmatic in my belief that that God enables them to to pray in a particular prayer language. Uh, I'm not as close to that idea as I may have been. Uh, I don't pretend to fully understand that. I'm not suggesting that that's something I've experienced necessarily myself personally, although I do know this. There's certainly been times in my life, and I think most of you would identify with this, there have been times in my life when I was so grieved, so burdened about something that I just didn't even know how to pray about it. I didn't even know what to say to the Lord. <laughs> and it's like the old song says, when you don't feel like praying, pray. And here's the thing, even in those times when I can't verbally express what, what, I, what I'm trying to express, God miraculously can understand. Even the groanings of my heart. Now, if you want to call that a private prayer language or whatever, I'm, I'm fine with that, okay? Um, but what we're talking about here is in the context of the church, of a corporate gathering. And you're going to see that in the language that the apostle, 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 apostle. And so maybe you're wondering, well, pastor, if that's your view, then, then why don't we just skip over chapter 14 and move into chapter 15? Well, not so fast, because there are still some important principles taught here, still some common mistakes that the Corinthians make, and I believe we make as well. Uh, they seem to value and prize wrong things in ways that we even continue to struggle with today. And what Paul has to say uh, to them about the way that Christian worship should be ordered for the glory of God and the good of one another, I think it remains vitally important, uh, even in the world in which we live. And so let's look together at the first 25 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love to give you a copy of God's Word. Uh, you can look along with somebody there near you, or you should find uh, that the text is up on the screen. Paul writes again and says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Remember that phrase, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you 
unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, that's a critically important word to our text this morning, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager uh, for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel, here it is again, in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise... If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen or find agreement to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. We see that recurring theme here, this idea of building up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, this is important, in church... Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. Be innocent as it relates to evil, he's saying, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord." Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an, but if all prophecy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed until falling on his face that God is really among you. There are three principles here that the Apostle Paul unpacks as it relates to this matter, particularly uh, of the gift of tongues. And so the first one is the intelligibility principle. The intelligibility principle. Now there's still a great deal of confusion over exactly what the gifts of tongues uh, what the gift of tongues is. Uh, the text that we often associate with the gift of tongues in the New Testament is found in Acts chapter 2. Uh, in the case of Acts chapter 2, however, it is clear uh, that the tongues being spoken of there, being spoken, were actual known languages. Okay, it, That is what is called xenoglossia. Okay, This is the ability to miraculously speak a known language that one had not learned. That's what was happening in Acts chapter 2. And we see that clarified in verse number 6 of Acts 2, where it says this, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So here in our text, Paul is comparing what is unintelligible, that's called glossolalia, 
Okay, this ecstatic expression that is not intelligible with what is intelligible, and that here in the text is what he calls prophecy. And so Paul illustrates this. Uh, if he met with the Corinthian church and he spoke in tongues, he would not build them up because of the intelligibility principle. Paul lists four types of intelligible words here in his writing. He uses the word revelation. That's information that one receives. Okay, uh, We believe, according to Scripture, that there is no new revelation. Okay, if Brother Mike gets up here one week and says, hey, check this out, folks. You can go ahead and leave your Bible shut because this week in my study, God gave me some new revelation outside of the Bible. You better start thinking about packing your stuff up and heading out the door, okay? Because we have no need of that. We have the full revelation of God in His Word. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't give us particular insight particular discernment and wisdom as it relates to His Word, but, but as it relates to extra-biblical revelation, that, that's, not, that's not what he's talking about. So revelation, he talks about knowledge. That is information that we or one possesses. Then he says prophecy. That is a means of communicating revelation. Uh, and then teaching. That is the means of communicating knowledge. And so Paul says in verses 5 and 6 here, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless, what? Someone interprets. So that why? The church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you, he says, speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some, here it is, revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? Are you following Paul's argument so far? Tongues, this glossolalia that was being used in the church at Corinth, tongues are unintelligible and help no one unless they are interpreted. And when they are interpreted, they function then as the equivalent of what we would call prophecy. They bring revelation from God for the good of the whole church, and everyone is what is built up. What they really need, Paul is saying, if they're going to benefit and grow and be built up, isn't the spectacular or the esoteric, or even what some would describe as the eerie. No, what they really need is a word of revelation, or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching. They need clear biblical truth explained and applied with clarity and understanding and the power of the Holy Spirit to the hearts of those who hear. This is the only way to build up the church. And then he uses two illustrations to further clarify, clarify, clarify. His point, verses 7 and 8. He takes us first to the concert hall, to the orchestra in verse number 7. He says, even if lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Now, I can sit down at a piano, and I physically have the ability to push down the keys with my fingers. Okay? So I guess technically you could say I can play a piano. But it would only take about 10 seconds for each of you to know that I really can't play the piano. You would be like, that sounds terrible. Because I know enough musically to know that certain notes are not intended to be played together. When they are, it's what we call discord. Okay, it sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. And so he's kind of making that point here. 
1999, there were some 2,000 people that gathered in this national auditorium in Madrid, Spain, uh, for a performance by the famous Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. And as the orchestra was seated, everything seemed to be going as expected. The audience settled in for what they uh, anticipated would be a delightful evening of musical entertainment. But that's not what happened. The reports later read this way, grumbling began Tuesday night when the sounds of the oboe, a princeman of the piece, went astray. You got to watch those oboe players, you know. (laughs) So one instrument went off on its own and started to make mistakes, which would be enough to ruin, of course, the entire performance to be sure. But it didn't stop there. Soon the horn and the trombone were following the oboe until the symphony became a cacophony. And get this, picture the scene now. This ornate auditorium, the men in their tuxedos with their black ties, the women in their formal gowns, and they begin to shout, off, 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 off. And they boo the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra off the stage. This is not right. And so Paul says, that's what worship at Corinth has become. And your misuse and abuse of your giftings and these kind of things, it just sounds like mass chaos, confusion, disharmony. It should have been harmony. It should have been symphony with each member bringing a distinct contribution, but for the good of the whole. The oboe isn't supposed to rebel and take the horn and the trombone with him. Instead of the audience being edified, they were horrified. Instead of the congregation being built up, they were confused and frustrated and divided. And then he uses another illustration in verse number 8. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? This time he's using a military metaphor. And as I was studying this text, I, I did a little bit of research and I looked up the U.S. Army daily schedule of bugle calls. I was shocked. I, I mean, I'm familiar with Reveille and I'm familiar with taps and but but I was not familiar with the fact that there are 25 distinct bugle calls possible on any given weekday, each of them communicating quite different orders to the troops. Now, that's a potentially confusing array of different bugle calls. And so what if the bugler was only interested in playing playing improvisational jazz? I I would probably enjoy it. I mean, I, I, I dig some jazz, right? But the soldiers wouldn't have a clue what was going on. It would be chaos. So it would be like me getting up here this morning and beginning the message by saying, Clama a mí y yo te responderé y te enseñaré cosas grandes y ocultas que tú no conoces. Todo lo puedo en Cristo que me fortalece. Amen? Amen. So we have one who can understand, okay, at least a little bit of what I'm saying, right? Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? couple getting it okay maybe but the rest of you are like sounds pretty i like the way in spanish they roll the r's and that's pretty that's pretty great but ultimately you're not being edified by that right because for all you know i was calling you a bunch of imbeciles okay I, i was not i was actually quoting two verses of scripture okay and before you think that your pastor's fluent in spanish those are just a couple of verses that i committed to memory a long time ago okay (laughs) and so a real spanish speaker might go that is terrible spanish (laughs) But I I hope I'm illustrating the point of what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. He's saying, if it's not intelligible, then how is anybody edified by that? 
you will notice that we, we do not have Russian interpretation in our services here at First Baptist Van Alstine. I don't know if there's anybody in the room who would even benefit from that. If there is, I would be surprised. I've not, I've not met you yet. Okay, and, and if you would benefit from it because you do speak Russian, you, you probably wouldn't necessarily want to hear a sermon in Russian or through an interpreter. Okay, so do you understand what Paul is getting at here? There's the intelligibility principle. Then secondly, there is the edification principle. And these two obviously go hand in hand. Public worship is for edification. It's for edification. It's for the building up of the church. As we saw in verse number one, very clearly, Paul tells the Corinthians to privilege prophecy over uh, tongue speaking in their assemblies. Now, he's not saying that those who have this gift are better than those who have this gift. He's talking about the priority of these gifts in the corporate worship gathering. Paul tells the Corinthians that this is important. And in verses 2 through 6, he explains why. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, We are to desire gifts, especially that we may prophesy for... Here's his reason. Here's why we are to desire that we may prophesy, especially for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. No one understands him. He utters mysteries in the Spirit, unless there's someone present with the gift of interpretation of tongues to explain what is being said for everyone's benefit. The only person, the only one who knows what is being said is God himself. Not even the speaker who speaks in a tongue understands his message. On the other hand, verse number 3, he says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And so now Paul is saying, here are the consequences of the misuse of these gifts at Corinth. If you don't have an interpreter, well, the person who's speaking in tongues, really then all they're doing is building themselves up which he's already told the Corinthians is the very thing that you are not to do. That's not the purpose for giftings. And that's Paul's concern here in chapter 14, building up the church. So we're not to build ourselves up, not to seek to make ourselves look good. No, rather, in all that we do, in all of the exercise of our gifts God has given us, we are to look out for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the good of others, the building up of one another. So the key, Paul says... To building up and being edified is what? Illegibility. It's understandability. It is, it, it is understanding the truth. How do we build one another up? We're to speak truth and love to one another. We're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds as the truth penetrates and renovates how we think and how we behave. And then Paul gives a bit of an exposition on that very truth in verses 13 through 19. It makes it clear that change comes as we engage our brain. I think it's Jen Wilkin who says, you cannot love what you do not know. You can't worship what you do not know. And so it's important for us not just to come together to worship just in spirit, which we're told to do, but to also worship in what? In truth. In truth. You ever come to work, come to work, come to work, come to I'm the pastor. You come to get up on a Sunday morning, you're like, I'm just not feeling it today. I mean, that, that sometimes happens, doesn't it? I just, I'm, not, I'm just not feeling it today. Okay, And so, you know, your feelings are just not there. 
And maybe even in the midst of a worship service, maybe you're consumed with thinking about other things, your job this next week, or the roast that's at home in the crock pot, wondering if it's going to be overcooked when you get home. And I mean, all sorts of things that you can be thinking about. Okay? And so, so you can be consumed with all of this other thinking. Okay? And so it's like, well, what, what is God really doing in my life? Okay, what, 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 is, what does he want me to do as I worship? Well, I'm not feeling it, but here's what I do. I know some things. I know some things to be true. And so I can sing about those things that I know to be true because I've studied the truth. I've studied the word of God. And so based upon that, those facts, those things that I know to be true, and I know that in God's good grace, he's going to pull my feelings along. It's all based in truth. So our gathering is not just us getting all worked up into an emotional frenzy. Okay, and some of us, again, are more emotionally inclined than others. We worship that way. I, I understand all of that, and that's great. And we never want anyone to feel that they are compelled to worship in a particular way. There are times when I can hardly sing because I'm overcome with emotion. I just find myself crying. At the thought of me as a sinful human being that can experience the grace of God at work in my life, and I can know that I'm forgiven, and heaven will someday be my home. And that's, that's, it's overwhelming to think about that. There are other times that, that I, I may feel inclined, and I may feel uh, just I, 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 I'm more expressive in my worship. Okay, so we've got to be very careful, and that's why you, don't, you won't see us here uh, in, in kids' ministry all the way up through, we don't do big, long, emotional appeals for people to, to make a decision in the moment and all that kind of thing and try to manipulate people. I've been in meetings where the speaker will have the music change its tone or at a, just a particular time and in a way to sort of manipulate people to make a decision. We're not into all that monkey business. Okay, M My job... My goal each week in preaching is not to convict you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to faithfully proclaim the truth of the Word of God. And as it relates to this time together, it's really not about me. And I'm not saying that in any sense of false humility. I recognize that God in His sovereignty and again in His good grace chooses to use the giftings and the personality of a preacher. I, I understand that. But ultimately, it's not about me. It's about this book. It's about the very Word of God. And so if you come to church and you start noticing, boy, more and more, Pastor Mike's just like closing his Bible, and really all he's doing is sharing with us his opinion about stuff, that, 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 that should cause alarm in your heart. Okay, because it's about this book. It's about the Word of God. And we want that to be what's central in our worship. And so Paul says here, he gives thanks that he speaks in tongues. And yet listen to this. Is this clear enough? He says, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Five intelligible words of biblical instruction more valuable than 10,000 mysterious or ecstatic utterances. And we live in a day that values the mysterious and the dramatic and the emotionally charged. We live in a day that teaches us to, to, to long for shortcuts. But Paul makes it clear, even in his other writings, as he wrote to the Ephesians, for example, and he says, we will know God when the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God enlightens the eyes of our hearts so that we may know what is the hope to which we are called. That's critically important. So edification 
building one thing, one thing, one thing, the intelligible communication of biblical truth. That's what we need today more than ever. Public worship, Paul says, is about edification. Edification. Number three, the final principle. And that is the evangelism principle. He starts out in verse number 20 with something of a rebuke uh, for the Corinthians. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants, be innocent in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. It's time to grow up, guys. That's what he's saying. He says, the way that you're playing with the, the sensational and the spectacular and, and the abuse of these gifts and things, trying to make yourselves look like big shots, it's frankly juvenile. And so he, he's saying, uh, mature understanding of this whole question here, what is healthy and what is good for the church, thinks about edification. Will it be a blessing to one another? But he also, as he's about to teach us, says we need to think about evangelism. What will non-Christians make of all of this? If an unbeliever comes in among us, what, 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 what will how we worship do to them? What will they think about it? Now let's face it. Uh, and this is for those of us who've been involved in church life for a very long time. Okay, we have a, we can, we have a kind of a church ease that we speak. Okay, a particular language that we feel comfortable with. Words that you hear pretty frequently, redemption and sacrifice and blood and all of those sorts of things. But I want you to think about an unsaved person, okay, a person who did not grow up in church, even grew up maybe here in America, but did not grow up with any kind of a church background or anything like that. And they come into one of our worship services and maybe we, we happen that Sunday to be singing the old hymn, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And they're going to be like, what in the world is this? <laughs> had a guy a number of years ago in our church in South Texas. He was a, a rancher. And uh, we struck up a conversation uh, after the service. And, and what we're talking, I'm talking about the days that I worked on the dairy farm in Pennsylvania while I was in seminary and everything. We struck it up. And finally he goes, hey, let me ask you a question. What's this whole thing about the Lamb of God? I'm like, what an amazing open door to share the gospel with a guy <laughs> in a way that he can understand. I mean, you know, so I'm like, well, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, there was a lamb that would be slain on the Day of Atonement, and its blood would shed. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the Lamb of God, Scripture says, who takes away the sins of the world. And his, his forerunner, John the Baptist, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's like, it's like he got it. <laughs> and so there are aspects of what we do every week. While it may be very comfortable and seem common to us and everything, that's not always the case for the unbeliever. So then Paul says, well, what about this matter of tongues? How is that going to be perceived by a, a non-believer when they come into your assembly and you're, and you're abusing these gifts? There's a pretty good chance that they're going to shake their heads in amazement and say these people have lost their minds. That's the wording that he uses here. And they'll be hardened in their unbelief, perhaps, in their rejection of God. It will be a sign to them of judgment. Now, in this particular case, he is actually quoting from the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28. And you see that in verse number 21. He says, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And so in, in its context there, Isaiah is speaking about the invading Assyrian army that God was sending to judge his people for their failure to believe. 
And the foreign tongues that they would hear was the strange language of the Assyrians who were in God's sovereignty exercising the wrath and the judgment of God. And so when Paul says tongues are a sign for the unbeliever, that's what he means. That's what he's talking about. God is really saying to us about these things. It's these overarching principles. There's this intelligibility principle. No one is edified if, if there's no understanding of what's being said. There, there's the edification principle, so no one can be built up, no one can be edified if there isn't intelligibility. And you've got to think about the evangelism principle. It's what God is still pleased to do in the ministry of the local church and through His Word. This is the reality for which we all ought to be praying. That God may yet do it among us. Take His truth, His Word, draw us to Himself irresistibly and wonderfully for His own glory. Worship is about edification, building one another up by the intelligible communication of rich biblical truth. And public worship is about evangelism, worship to open the heart and with the, with the light of the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ applied to our spiritual condition to the point that we even internally fall on our faces before God and worship Him and say, I, I see who I am in, in light of your holiness. And I need the gospel. And I'm relying fully and completely upon your finished work on my behalf. That's the gospel. That's the evangelism principle of this text. So if we could, for just a moment, bow our heads and close our eyes. I realize this morning's message is maybe a little different. It's because of the nature of the subject here. This may be a subject that you've thought a lot about. Maybe because of your background, your upbringing, your spiritual journey. Maybe this is a subject that you've thought very little about. Maybe this whole language of gifting and tongues and prophecy and all those things is totally foreign to you. What I believe in this moment is of most importance is that I do the best I can in my weakness, my sinful condition, by the grace of God to clearly communicate to you the love of God in Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to, to take that step of faith. It's not about praying a particular prayer or saying words in a particular order and all of those sorts of things. It's about the condition of your heart and the understanding that apart from Jesus Christ, you're what the Bible describes as spiritually dead. When you have in fact turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, then in His grace, God gives us gifts. In fact, the language, the original languages of Scripture would say they are grace gifts. And He gives us those things to be used ultimately for His glory, the good of those around us, the advancement of the gospel. So you may be someone today who would say, Pastor, I don't have a clue what some of my giftings are. 
We would love to, in discipleship, help you understand what those things are. Come to better understand who God has created you to be. We always, always want our giftings to be utilized in a way that honors God, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, and points others to Him. Father, we thank You. Thank You that You have given us, according to Your Word, everything that we need for life and godliness. You've not left us to fend for ourselves. You've made a way through the substitutionary death of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, a way for us to be forgiven to be brought into a right relationship with you, to be reconciled to you. Lord, in your good grace, you have gifted us. Help us, Lord, to celebrate our diversity here, to strive in every way toward unity, so that together we can glorify you and point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.